welcome back. Today we have an incredible guest, Renee King Sonnen, and uh, from Rowdy Girl Sanctuary. We're going to hear all about that. And then also, I've got with me my fantastic guest co host, Monica. So, Monica, welcome. Hi, everybody. All right, Renee. Yes. We're really, really psyched to have you here. It's been a long time coming. We've been, you know, waiting to get you on. Um, what can you tell us about yourself and Rowdy Girl? Well, um, a lot of people think I'm rowdy girl, and um, I uh, have to admit I am pretty rowdy, but Rowdy Girl Sanctuary was named after my uh, beloved calf, Rowdy Girl. And uh, Rowdy Girl was um, purchased by me about 11 years ago when my husband wanted me to get more involved in cattle ranching. I wasn't a vegan at the time, neither was he. We were cattle ranchers and I really had no uh, inclination to help him at the ranch. I was into yoga, music, meditation, and you know, doing my thing and um, helping out at the ranch wasn't really what I wanted to do uh, unless I was doing yoga or something out there. But he wanted me helping with fences, helping with hay, helping with this and that. And I didn't really want to. And so uh, in order to get me interested, he came home one day and told me about these two calves that needed a mama. And one of them was Rowdy Girl. And so it's all his fault. Um, I blame Tommy all the time for telling me about these two calves that I fell in love with. Uh, the youngest one, I mean, one of them passed away early. She had a Failure to thrive disease, never, never got colostrum, never thrived. She died like within a week. But rowdy girl was, um, you know, just something else. Very rowdy, always wanted uh, attention. I began to just fall in love with feeding her twice a day, like clockwork. I would run outside and I would become like a character in her life, I became her mom. I became Rowdy Girl's surrogate mom. And um, it really felt like I was uh, catapulted into a world that I had no idea existed. Uh, prior to Rowdy Girl, I didn't even acknowledge the cows, really. I knew they were there, but I never really thought too much about it. They were Black Angus, and they were there for a purpose. And I never gave it too much thought, but Rowdy Girl changed all that. So she was the impetus of my of my transformation, if you will. She was what started that ball rolling down the rabbit hill. You know, that little rabbit hole you go through. Mm -hmm. She's the one that started all that for me. Awesome. So for the uninitiated, for people who don't know, why don't you tell us what Rowdy Girl Sanctuary is and then how it started? Okay, yeah. Rowdy Girl Sanctuary is a 501c3 nonprofit farm animal sanctuary. We're the first ever cattle ranch in the world to uh, transition and go vegan. Uh, and I didn't know that at the time, uh, but uh, that's what Rowdy Girl Sanctuary is. We have one of the largest herd rescues intact um, ever. And we're the first documented beef cattle ranch to transition, one the first that I know of anyway. But um, so that's what Rowdy Girl Sanctuary is. We are in Welder, Texas. Uh, we've been a nonprofit since uh, January uh, 20th of 
February 20th, excuse me, 2015. And, um, that's what we do. We have visitors, tours, people come volunteer, and we have um, very specific programming called the Rancher Advocacy Program, where we transition um, cattle ranchers and animal farmers' minds to uh, go from animal farming to plant-based farming. And we also have a program called Families Choosing Compassion, where we inspire, educate, and encourage families that are in the FFA and 4-H system to um, to stop doing that and to be part of their animal's life to the day they die. Hell yeah. We love this. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll pass it over to Monica. Yeah. Um, ranching runs so deep in Texas and like there's eighth generation ranchers there now. And it's just so embedded in the culture with the FFA and the 4-H and the programs that are within the school. Um, I want to hear more about how you view leadership when it comes to the start of Rowdy Girl and how you run the sanctuary. How I view leadership. Wow, that's a Mm -hmm. great question. Um, Because not everybody's cut out for this, you know. A lot of people want to do this. uh, They want to have a sanctuary because they want to save animals. But if you can't lead, you will fall flat. And you will not only, uh, you know, embarrass yourself, but you will you know, probably kill the animals to go with it. I mean, I'm just saying, I don't mean that ugly, but not everybody's cut out for this work. It is a tough, tough, tough life. Um, when I made the decision to do this, I was already uh, very much a business person. I had had my own businesses in the past. Uh, I was not afraid to get on uh, to camera to appeal, to ask for money. I was not afraid to do whatever I had to do to get a nonprofit status, to get whatever uh, funding I needed. You know, you cannot be shy when it comes to uh, what you need when you're taking care of animals that are otherwise eaten, you know, in our food system after about six months of of being born. And so, you know, um, you know, I... I am very much the person that uh, I, I lead by my own passion. I am motivated and inspired by my, my mission. I am driven uh, to be a change maker because uh, I really do believe that, you know, we, we have to change our food system. We have to change the way we view animals. We have to change the way we uh, view tradition, view culture. And so as a leader, I am constantly um, being asked to talk about these things because this is the way I roll up here. This is the way I process. And um, part of that leadership involves uh, a lot of education, uh, not only, you know, in forums where I'm being asked to speak at VegFest um, or conferences, but also people like I I do everything I can to educate one-on-one and lead in that way. Um, you know, you just have to, you have to inspire, you have to educate, you have to be, and you have to take care of yourself. You know, part of being an effective leader is also, you know, knowing how to shut it down, knowing how to be present with your, your center so that you can be full for others. Um, but having a sanctuary, uh, is, is tough. It's, 
it's a lot of work and you better get ready. You know, it, it's those animals depend on you leading, you know? Um, it's a huge leap from, I barely noticed the animals are just kind of part of the backdrop. Like I just, I knew that there are food and I also know they existed, but they're just kind of there. There's a huge leap from that to running an animal sanctuary. And I know that the starting point was Rowdy Girl, but what was the transition like? Like the kind of the self-reflection, the holding up the mirror. But I actually like to hear like from developing this special relationship with this animal to changing into vegan, to starting something. Because a lot of people could just be like, okay, I'm vegan now, but I'm just going to stay quiet about it. Like to actually making a decision to, to do this, to influencing her husband going forward. What was the, what's the story between falling in love with this animal to where you are today? Yeah, that was a, that was a journey. And I went vegan five years after I got Rowdy Girl. So that's a five-year journey. Um, and it's one that started with uh, me being, you know, I'm always a person that observes a lot. I, I practice observation. And um, um, because I'm a yogini, I practice yoga. And so part of that is observation, but I wasn't vegan. Uh, I just practiced a lot of yoga and observation was part of it. And <clears throat> I started observing the animals, uh, the cows and the calves when I would feed Rowdy Girl. I literally feel like I was Alice in Wonderland in a, in a rabbit hole, like I was in a different life when I was with her. And I began to have heightened senses. Uh, I like to liken it to, uh, you know how you've seen those. I, I'm a vampire. I love vampire movies. Okay. And so... Uh, you know, when a, when a vampire transitions, they get heightened senses, right? Mm -hmm. They get real heightened senses and all this, right? And strong and, you know, they got to be, have all these heightened senses to be a vampire. Well, mm -hmm. you got to have heightened senses to be an ethical vegan too, let me tell you. So that's what happened for me is my senses began to heighten. When I was with Rowdy Girl, I could feel the heartbeat of these animals. I could feel the nuances of what they were communicating to each other. I could sense who was the babysitters. I could sense who the siblings were, you know, things I wouldn't normally even know, recognize, or even give a crap about began to like be way up here. And like I was going, whoa, I mean, and I wouldn't know nasted or anything. I was just like going vegan and didn't know it. Uh, you know, I didn't have anybody throwing blood on themselves or saying, go vegan. <laughs> um, it was just rowdy girl. And her communication to me, when I was feeding her, she was feeding me. And she and I have a very, very close bond to this day. Like sitting right here talking to you, I can sense her. It's a heightened sense. And uh, so over the years, I began to question my husband, you know, like, uh, why are we eating animals from the store when we have, you know, animals here that are pasture raised? Uh, why, why aren't we killing our own animals? I began to like ask questions that I normally, uh, you know, care less about, but I wanted to understand what we were doing. And I would, uh, I would leave Rowdy Girl, feeding Rowdy Girl, and I would go back and have to be, uh, a rancher's wife, I'd have to be analytical, 
you know, when I was, when I was not feeding Rowdy Girl, I would see the herd of cows. I would see the herd. When I was feeding Rowdy Girl, I saw them individually. Mm. And, and it, you know, we have this idea that it's just a herd of cattle. Well, no, those are individuals. And I began to see them individually. I began to name them. And I don't even know that I was naming them or, or maybe they were telling me their names. I mean, I really, it kind of felt that way. And um, as time went on, I just began to push my husband uh, to uh, uncomfortable places where he would have to answer things he didn't want to answer. Uh, like, why don't we eat our own animals? And, you know, finally he told me, well, because I can't eat animals that I know. And when he told me that, I knew there was a problem because so, you know, I said, oh, so we don't eat animals we know, but we can eat animals we don't know uh, the same kind. And what if it's their mother or their brother or their sister? Or what if it's really them and you don't even know it? You know, and so, you know, it's really about perception, you know what I mean? And so um, all these conflicts started happening and I started wanting to, um, you know, get my milk from a, from a local dairy. I began to do more and more research. My research led me to trying to be more humane. Um, I really thought I could be more humane. Uh, and until I realized with all that research that all it meant was animals were going to still be killed. And I, it, it just was a label. It wasn't a reality. Uh, it, it is not humane to slit anyone's throat that doesn't want to die. It is not humane to breed animals into existence to kill them, to take them from their families. There's nothing humane about animal agriculture. It is the most egregious, horrific industry on this earth. I believe that today. I didn't know that then. I was trying to understand who we were. I'm married to a cattle rancher. I'm I'm a cattle rancher because I'm married to one, you know, and I'm having these relationships with these cows that defy my understanding. And um, one day uh, and, and, and I began to make it very difficult for my husband to send the animals to the cell barn because every six months the animals would be rounded up and the babies would be sent to the cell barn. So we had a cow calf operation. And a cow-calf operation breeds so that the babies can be born, they nurse from their mothers, and six months later, that batch of animals will go to a, a cell barn where they're sold to go to a feedlot or wherever else they're going to go. And um, I made it real hard. My husband didn't want to, didn't even want me around when he did it because I would cry I wasn't a vegan. I just had this, I started developing this sensitivity. I didn't know any vegans. I wasn't even thinking about being a vegan. Uh, I was just uh, becoming a, a compassionate person that couldn't stand or tolerate these animals going to the cell barn. I hated it. And I didn't want to be in this business anymore. And so I kept trying to figure out ways to be in the business that I hated. Uh, and so more and more humane education more and more and more and every time I turned around it was like a dead end you know animals still died and they didn't want to die and um I just drove myself freaking crazy <clears throat> and then on October 31st 2014 yes it was Halloween uh, my favorite 
holiday. Was it? Uh, you got you got a you got another vampire connection here? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it kind of <laughs> it kind of does. Um, October thirty first, two thousand fourteen. I was watching a dissertation by Dr. Melanie Joy. Do you know her? Yes. Yeah. So Dr. Melanie Joy and I, I've met her since. I met her a couple of times. I just love her because she, her dissertation on carnism is what exploded my insides. Um, I, I I was primed for five years for this. October 31st, we were on our way that evening to go to his mother his mother's house. We had a big family get get together every year, uh, Halloween block party with all the kids in their costumes and. All the, you know, family would, you know, get together and just chit chat, play cards or whatever, eat and do the block party with kids with all the costumes. So that particular day, uh, I'm watching this dissertation and Melanie Joy is uh, talking to this table of this family around a table. They're eating beef stew. And she says, have you seen that one where they're eating beef stew? Where she's. No, no. She says, uh, they're all eating beef stew. They're just loving it. And somebody at the table says, what's the recipe? This is so good. And the lady of the house says, well, so glad you asked. You start off with a pound of very young golden retriever. Well, I, along with everybody on camera, opened my mouth in shock. And I was like, oh, my effing God. No, that cannot be true. Uh, you know, and I was like, ah! And, and then the lady says, oh, no, just kidding. It's really, you know, a cow. Well, nobody could resume eating because the imagery of baby puppies being chopped to death in a bowl was what was in their mind. It was in my mind, too. And I was like, oh, God. And so I was, that just mortified me. And it really set my mind to thinking about, you know, all this. And I, and here we are going to my mother-in-law's house. We go to my mother-in-law's house just a couple hours later. We walk in and all the kids are there. My mother-in-law walks out with this big old pot of beef stew. And she says, you know, oh, good to see you. She sets it on the table. Would you like a bowl of stew? And my ears are ringing, you know. I'm like, uh... I can't eat that. And she was like, well, why not, Renee? I said, because it's got floating dead, hacked up animal bodies in it, and I can't eat it. I had never called it that. I had never called beef stew floating dead, hacked up animal bodies. That just never was part of my vocabulary. But when I, that Melanie Joy did that, and my mother-in-law looked at me, and everybody in the in the room stopped talking. They looked at me and was like, what did you say? I said, it's got floating dead, hacked up animal bodies in it. I can't eat it. And I was as, as authentic as I'd ever been in my life. And she said, well, Renee, you can pick it out. And I was like, nope, there ain't no more picking it out for me. At that moment on the spot, I became a vampire. Well, I became a vegan. But at that moment, right then, Everything that was on my insides jumped to my outsides. It was like I was reborn on the spot. And, um, oh my God, my poor husband, he didn't, he, he, he did not know who I was. 
Uh, I had totally changed. I hated what he was doing. He was a murderer. Uh, no more animal products in my home. That's it. I mean, it was on. It, wow. If you've ever seen War of the Roses, that movie War yes. of the Roses where they hang from the chandelier, you ever seen that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it was like that in our house. But well, it was... But it was I don't want to say like we're like a few minutes in, we're already dropping War of the Roses statements, we're dropping vampire statements. I'm feeling good about it. Please continue. <laughs> That's what happened. I yeah. mean, it was crazy, and my poor husband didn't know what who he was married to. Um, I love that. I also love like the wildness of like that moment where you're like, now there's like hacked up dead, like floating body parts in there. I like I like the non-subtleness of the, it's like a mic drop, like moment. Very, uh, I like everything about this story. Monica? Yeah. And I really like the, the Melanie Joy's take on the belief system that's carnism because none of us choose the system. It's just the system that we're born into and the cognitive dissonance that's required to perpetuate carnism. Um, it's really interesting when you just take a look at it and you become aware. And I love how this awareness really drove action for you. Um, going vegan isn't a planned event. And I like how you elaborated on that. Tell us a bit about how activism plays into Rowdy Girl and how it's not one size fits all. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, uh, in my other life, uh, before vegan, I was, um, I was always the kind of person that, uh, liked to inspire, motivate, encourage, educate. I had a, a school at one point, it was Renee King's School of Performing Stars. And I, and I taught stage and vocal performance. I taught very, very high performing techniques to, people that really wanted to perform in big audiences. I mean, and really be, have that star quality. I, I'm the kind of person that always wants to inspire greatness in others. That's just who I am. Okay. So you take that. And now that I'm vegan for the animals, for animal, for the, for the animals, animal rights was a no brainer. It was like, I, I am going to naturally inspire and educate. And I'm going to do it in a very, very interesting way where performance and theatrics plays into it because that's who I am. Uh, and, and it works for me. I mean, my activism is, um, you know, I mean, I love it when people ask me, what do I do with the eggs? I mean, that lets me talk about chicken periods for a long time. And it really, you know, throws people a loop, you know, whenever I tell them all that, you know, it doesn't matter whatever anybody wants to say to me, ask me questions. My activism is such that I tell lots of stories and I hold nothing back. I don't judge, but by the time they get through talking to me, they are like really questioning their choices because I do not hold back about educating around veganism. Um, so, and the second, I, I actually, well, What's sorry, that? I just want to ask a real quick question there about this. It's an add on to this, like very specifically, you make this choice. So one day you're not vegan, the next day you are vegan and suddenly you're on a mission and you look around and you're in like ranching territory. So it's like once a person might say you're in enemy territory and like you've got to change hearts and minds. Another person might say like, oh, no, you're in like prime opportunity. It's like a, it's like you're in the 
the opportunity area. Like you obviously not to use a term that I think we would, we could joke about. It's like, you're going to have a lot of beef with people who are trying to change, (laughs) who are like, you're trying to change their thinking. Like when you made this change and you got into this activist space, how did you handle people's negative reactions and people's pushback and people not wanting to talk to you? Like, how did you get into that space where you can influence thinking and how do you keep doing it? Well, you know, a lot of people ask me this question and it's kind of, it's, Texas has this uh, persona of, of being all cataranching, you know, and, and people like, push it back and all that. I didn't get a lot of pushback from cattle ranchers. I got more pushback from vegans than I did cattle ranchers, honestly. Mm. And uh, yeah, because I am not your typical vegan. Mm. I I hung out with cattle ranchers and still do to this day. They, you know, we work with cattle ranchers. We, we buy hay from them. They help us fix fences. Uh, you know, we, we work with vets that are cattle ranchers. Uh, you know, they're curious about what we do. Uh, they don't put us down, not to my face anyway. And uh, <laughs> I think that because, and we have, and we have cattle ranchers and their wives that call us wanting us to rescue animals that they don't want to send to the slaughterhouse because they've seen our story on national news. And so, you know, we're really an ally to cattle ranchers, but I'll tell you, some vegans out there, we've had some, we've had some vegans hate on us. It's the craziest thing you've ever seen. But um, yeah, you know, and and but I haven't had any cattle ranchers hating on us. You know, the the only time I might have experienced a little bit of that was whenever uh, we were. It was, I was very early on and I was rescuing in the middle of a rescue of a, of a steer named Oatmeal. And I was slap dab in the middle of good old boy territory of FFA and 4H trying to get this, uh, steer Oatmeal out of a slaughterhouse and, uh, in a, in a sanctuary hours I was trying. And so I was stepping on their toes is what I was doing. I didn't know I was stepping on their toes because I was kind of new at the time. Uh, but I was really stepping on their toes. I didn't handle myself very tactfully. Uh, and so, you know, I, I've learned a lot since then. And, uh, you know, cattle ranchers are good people. They're not the enemy. Uh, the, the enemy is animal ag, the industry. Mm-hmm. The enemy is tradition, culture, our government. You know, I'm just calling it out. I mean, it isn't the cattle ranchers. They're just doing what they do, you know, but that's, trying to make like, a living. That's the point. Like that. So like nothing drives me crazier than like the idea of trying to create change through like increased conflict with people. Like I think like you got to meet people where they're at. Um, try to like create a situation where you can have like real dialogue, be in real places. And like I, I think. The idea, like, that's why I want to say, like, are you in enemy territory or are you kind of in an opportunity-rich territory? Because when I view creating change, uh, previously I was a therapist, so I did a lot of addiction work. Addiction work isn't about making people feel that drugs are bad and they're evil for doing them. Addiction work is about acceptance, understanding, meeting people where they're at, trying to create meaningful change that they care about, that they want, not what I think, how I think they should change. 
And I think the failure of, uh, of many different kinds of forms of change is creating continued conflict that is lazy and easy because it's easy to be in conflict with people and it's hard to be like compassionate and meet people where they're at. So it doesn't surprise me. You've probably gotten a bit of backlash from the vegan community. Um, and I think that's sad. I think it's a, a sad commentary on, on the idea of activism. Um, can we expand on your relationship with the ranchers and on your rancher advocacy program, the RAP Summit that you put on and the work you do with expanding people's circle of compassion? Yeah. Um, yeah, the RAP Summit, is, we're having our fourth one July 30th, actually. And, um, you know, that was the rancher advocacy program was was inspired by a conversation I had with a lady named Nikki. At the time, she was, um, she's still very much a part of the work we do um, in the background, behind the scenes. But she was talking to me one day about programming. I was very, very early on, and she was, um, you know, letting me know, Renee, you know, you need to start picking some programming for Rowdy Girl Sanctuary, something different, something that everybody else isn't doing, and uh, talk to me a little bit about what you do day to day. How do you, you know, what kind of conversations do you have on the phone, through emails? And and so I started talking to her and I said, well, you know, ever since that big CBS Evening News story, uh, you know, cattle ranchers and their families reach out to me. I find myself in the middle of the freaking pasture. Somebody wanted to talk to me, you know, that's the daughter of a cattle rancher or a cattle rancher's wife or somebody pretending to be so-and-so when they're really a cattle rancher. Um you know, want to talk to me about the way they feel about their animals. She said, what? Tell me more. And so I realized from that conversation with her that I was not only an animal rights activist, but I was a rancher advocate. And that is truly, truly what I am. I am an advocate for cattle ranchers and farm animal farmers. I'm not here to put them down. I'm here to meet them where they are. I too, I mean, I'm in recovery. I've been in the recovery movement for over 30 years. And, um, you know, uh, cattle ranchers, you know, have to recover too. You know, we have to recover from a hopeless state of mind and body that teaches us that we have only one way to farm, that the only way we're going to get subsidies or tax breaks uh, etc. is if we farm animals. We need to start making it easy for farmers to transition to a plant-based farm, you know, and we need to change our supply chain so that things aren't global, they're more local. We need to start speaking to indigenous uh, needs, to uh, to our our black fellows, uh, Americans, that, that need our assistance. You know, we've taken so much away from people you know, farming should be part of who we are in our communities, in our culture. It should be uh, our relationship to the earth, to the ground, to animals should be very harmonious. Uh, doesn't need to involve killing at all. There's no reason to involve the killing of animals. We need to be able to be um, one with animals, one with the earth. One with our food. Food is grown, not born. I mean, I always say, you know, if you plant a dead lamb, you're not going to get a lamb tree. Duh. You know, 
you know, all you're going to get is a diseased, you know, decaying carcass. So the Rancher Advocacy Program is really about education, in, inspiring cattle ranchers, farmers to transition. Um, we are working with a couple of farms. It's a, it's, it's the type of thing that when I started doing this, nobody was doing it. Nobody was talking about it. Um, I found myself in a, in a bottomless pit of like, it'll never happen. You'll never, you'll never see the light of day with this. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't hear that. You know, what I heard is, uh, you know, we have to do this. We, we as in I have to do whatever I have to do to inspire, to ignite, to motivate, to whatever I got to do to set the fire. Uh, I got to do it. And I did that. And um, now, you know, farm transition is talked about in our, in our world right now. I'm like, wow, how did this happen? Nobody wanted to talk to me about it five years ago. I was, it was like, it'll never happen, Renee. Um, but now, you know, uh, we're on the tip of the spear. I, you know, it's kind of cliche, but it's true. We're, um, you know, we're transitioning a farm right now in Arkansas from a chicken farm to a mushroom farm. We've been working with them for four years. Uh, you know, this, this farmer used to produce, produce, you know, breed into existence a hundred thousand chickens every 52 days, you know. They used to raise chickens in dark, dingy, horrible, horrific environment. And now they're going to, they're growing mushrooms. And, uh, we are going to be able to produce 32,000 pounds a week very soon. Uh-huh. And what we're doing, uh, <clears throat> behind the scenes, I, ain't, I don't even talk about this. I'm telling y'all stuff that I'm probably hadn't even told anybody yet, but, um, it's going to revolutionize chicken farming. And, um, you know, I'm real honored to be a part of a team, you know, that whatever passion I had ignited the right people and the right people are involved and the right people have showed up to, uh, to make what could have really turned into a horrible situation. I mean, this farm could have lost everything. They could have lost all their animals. They could have lost all of their land, all of their resources. And we managed to all come together and figure it out. And I couldn't be more humble or proud of that. But they're going to be on the RAP Summit. Um, um, Jennifer and Rodney Barrett will be on the farm, on the summit, uh, along with um, Dennis Vidmar, who is with the Mushroom Hub, and he is now the principal of Arkansas Fungi. So they'll be there. You know, the Plant-Based Food Association will be there. And so uh, the Rancher Advocacy Program is is just ramping up and getting started doing some really amazing work. One day it'll be its own nonprofit. Love it. Um, so from a, like, just a practical perspective, um, you know, a lot of the work that we do as coaches and, um, uh, again, like we do executive coaching and we do a lot of training. Um, one of the things that I see a lot is if a certain industry is in the news, especially if it's in the news in a negative way, 
there's this kind of polarized, like, oh, the people who work in those companies, they're evil, they don't care. I'll give you an example, like a, a pipeline company or an energy company. And having worked with a lot of those companies and knowing people there and like having personal relationships with them, being like, well, actually, no, these people actually, they aren't awful. And they, they don't necessarily think what's happening is good, but they're trying to create the best version of what they think is, is um, uh, they're trying to create a, a the best version of a bad situation, or they're trying to prevent that themselves. So like that kind of polarized idea, like if we go to around cattle ranches, people being like, oh, they're bad, evil people. So much of what you're seeing is resonating with me. It's like, hey, listen, just because someone's in an industry that's locked into certain ways of doing things or that exists because like the way the economy worked kind of created this thing. I don't want to say people are like hapless, but people aren't always these evil people or people also aren't necessarily aware that what they're doing isn't wrong because they're raised a certain way or they're raised in an industry or they understand things in a very specific way. So it's super compelling what you're talking about. I'm not saying like, let's give people like endless breaks, like nobody is bad, but also like not everyone is bad. Like there's like lots of people are actually probably genuinely good people. They just need to be shown a different way. So from a very practical perspective, how does one transition from like being a cattle ranch to anything else where a person could still make a good living off of it? Well, that's to be determined. Um, I mean, that's the work we're doing. We're on the front end of that. I mean, if I knew that right now, boy, ah, we'd be changing the world a mile a minute. But, um, you know, there's no, there's no right answer right now. Now I can tell you some, some things we're exploring, um, you know, um, vertical farming. Uh, I think vertical farming in, you know, in these uh, freight containers is a very, very good way to begin to um, grow food for your community. And also because you got to take care of the land. See, the land has been uh, decertified, compacted, you know, overused, you know, overgrazed. And, you know, cattle ranchers don't have a ton of land uh, you know, with, with just a few cows, cattle ranchers for the most part are really overusing their land. So the land is not going to be any good to grow food on. You know, it needs to be rewilded, reforested. Uh, we need to, you know, come together in our communities and educate our communities on how to bring back, you know, the wild, the what we've got to get our wild back, you know, our wildlife. Could you explain vertical farming for, again, for people who wouldn't know what that term is? Yeah. So vertical farming is when you, you grow up instead of flat, you know, you grow, you, you, whether it's trellises, whether it's pallets, whatever people want to use, uh, and it's in a controlled environment. It's in a controlled environment. So you can, you know, maybe use less water. You can, uh, experiment with solar energy and all of that. So you, whether it's whether it's raining, whether it's snowing, whether it's a drought, it doesn't matter. You can grow food in a controlled environment. And uh, that, to me, is what I think farming needs to start really looking into is more and more of these vertical farms. And there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, companies coming out now with turnkey packages where they can buy these freight containers and they can get the education that goes right along with it. Awesome. Um, and then you'd said kind of like 
re rewilding the land. I'm sorry, I didn't use the get the exact term, but so this land's just been overused for for a cattle farm. It's been overgrazed. The, the land has been essentially like beat up, and so it's not good for anything else but cattle farming. So the idea is, well, it is what it is, so we might as well keep doing that. But what you're suggesting is by using vertical farming, it could give the land some time to like reconstitute. Is that correct? Yeah, and you can become good stewards of the land instead of using the land to just stomp it out by cows. Uh, you can, you know, do your research, find out what kind of native grasses, native flowers, native, you know, wild animals were there are supposed to be there, and you can you know, create a, a synergy with the land to bring it back to the way it's supposed to be according to the to the uh, area geographically that you're in. I mean, you know, like when we moved here to Welder, um, this place was wild. It hadn't had any cows on it in many years. Um, and it was wild, wildflowers everywhere. Wild, you know, butterflies, bees, dragonflies, you know, even reported, you know, you know, like wildcats and there used to be bears out here. Uh, and and now, you know, since we've been here and we're doing good stuff, don't get me wrong. But the cows will just they will take over the land, you know. And so, you know, we're constantly rotating pastures, making sure they got good grass. Uh you know, we've got to, we've got to get back to caring for our land, just like we care for animals. Our, our land, our mother earth is in dire straits. And it's because we are overusing the earth, uh, overgrazing, overbreeding, killing everything. We become, we become a killing machine, you know? That's what we do. We are we are a killing machine, killing animals, killing resources, killing land, commodifying, 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 and we've got to get back to nature. Really, it's so simple, but yet it's so hard for people because we are over consumers, you know. What does it mean to be mission driven? And why do you claim that for yourself? Uh, I'm mission driven. Um, it, what it means to me is that every breath I take, even if I'm on vacation, there's a reason for it. Um, it you know, I, 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 I'm 64 years old and I'm sober in, in mind, body and spirit. Uh, I believe I really am that. I'm I'm very connected spiritually to my source. And so I know that I'm here for a purpose. And I uh, have taken a lot of tests. I, I I come out highly autistic on all of them. And that's okay with me. I don't mind even saying it out loud today. Um, and so I, I kind of vibe on a different level. And so I am extremely mission driven. I am all about, you know, people say it cliche. Oh, you know, you're you're changing the world. Let me tell you, that is the way I think. I think in terms of global. I'm always thinking global. However, I do know that it starts at home. But everything ripples. Everything ripples. You know, and so that's what it means to me. It means to to 
know why you're here, nurture why you're here, eat, sleep, drink, breathe while you're here, and then involve myself in not only Rowdy Girl and RAP, but like I'm on the board of directors of the Agriculture Fairness Alliance. Uh, we're a 501c4 lobbying group that is all about creating legislation, uh, the ag appropriation language that our Congress needs to hear so that we can create transition programs in our government for farmers. So when I say mission driven, whatever I can do, whatever I can do. Um, you know, whenever we talk to leaders on the podcast, one of the things I want to ask is like, what does leadership cost people? And what I mean by that is like leadership can be something as benign as, Hey, we're all going to go on walk and someone's just kind of leading the way. Someone chooses the direction. In other cases, it can be like, Oh, who's going to lead this project? Who's going to lead this team? And in some cases like yours, it's someone saying, Hey, I don't think that's right. And I believe there's a better way. I don't know what it is exactly, but I'm willing to lead the way to figure that out. That's cool. There's a lot of benefits that come with that. But people also don't do it for a reason because sometimes there's a real cost with it. You kind of alluded to one earlier about like kind of knowing how to lead yourself so that you can actually like, hey, I can need to shut down now so I can actually be here with people in my life. But this, this thing that you're doing right now and this passion and being that mission driven, being a leader in that way and like living it day to day, breath to breath, has it cost you anything? Yeah, you know, um, if I look at what it costs, it costs me. Um, I mean, I'm the kind of person that likes to shut down. Like, I like I, I people think I'm an extrovert uh, because I. I am very good at communicating and I'm, I'm gifted and skilled at being uh, out front. But my real, my real preference is to be in exclusion, you know? And, but, but man, when I need to be on, I don't care if it's 10 people or hundred thousand people, I have no qualms getting in front of anybody because I am so mission driven. It's, I'm not just wanting to go up there and sing a song. Uh, oh, I could do that too. But uh, <clears throat> as far as as far as what it's cost me, I think you know I like silent retreats. You know I like going to ten day silent retreats, and I don't get to go to those as often as I would like. Like ten days in a row of silence. If you know, I have to make it happen. I have to make silence happen. Like I built my house around a meditation room. You know, I've learned to adapt in order to be uh, a leader, a leader in this movement, in the work, in the work that I do. But I think it's probably cost me that. It's also, I'm also highly creative. Um, I'm a songwriter and a guitar player. And I don't, I don't play as much, my guitar as much. I don't write songs like I used to. Um, it's kind of like, but I don't miss it either. It's like, it's like I, if I wanted to pick up the guitar right now and play it, I could. I mean, I did write something about a month ago. I mean, anytime I want to pick it up and do it, I can do it. I'm an artist. If, you know, I could paint you right now. So if it's cost me anything, it's cost me the time I choose on doing some of these creative things. But 
my creative, my creativity goes into whatever I'm choosing to do. And I've always been that person that has never worked for other people. My life has always managed to produce for me as long as I'm staying true to myself. I, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, sit around wondering how I'm going to make money. I just do what I do and money comes. It's just part of it. You plant a tree, you get a tree. Plant, you know, what the, the kind of work I do uh, from the, from the right heart, from the right mission, funds come. And, uh, you know, and if I need more, I got to figure out how to do that. But I think it's cost me some of the quiet moments of, um, Extended silence. Um, I'm writing a book right now and, um, you know, I'm committed to a chapter a week. So in my meditation, I ask God to expand time for me because that's one thing that I, I find that I, I lack more and more of. And it's not that there is a lack of time. Time is the same for everyone. But I am so involved in so many aspects of this movement, uh, I, I'm really have, I have to learn to, to make decisions, choices. I can't be on every podcast. Uh, I get asked all the time and I, I want to do them all, but I just can't, you know? So does that answer your question? Beautifully. Perfect. I mean, like without injecting my own story here too much, I can relate to a lot of, of what you're saying that that space of creativity and the space that you'd spend kind of centering yourself on things you put into, you put into other things, but also that also allows you to funnel your creativity into another area. So you're still being creative. You're just being creative in a different way. So I it totally answered the question. It totally resonated. I actually, I find it like really, I found it very inspirational. Thank you. And you've got such a deep compassion uh, and awareness. How do you handle compassion fatigue? Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, like today when I was at the dentist, I was looking on my phone. There's a there's a place right up here in Austin. It's called Optimal Health Institute. I'm not plugging them on purpose, but they they do these like one week, two week, three week retreats where you you. You do wheatgrass, you rejuvenate with raw food, and uh, you swim in an oxygenated pool, and uh, compassion fatigue for me, I have, to, I have to deliberately schedule time to rejuvenate my mind, body, spirit. It has to be scheduled, okay? Uh, at, you know, I get up in the morning, I pray, I meditate. My room here has got an altar. I do it every morning without fail. I listen to um, all kind of teachings, whether they be from the Tao or, you know, a seen Christian. I love the mysticism of the ancient uh, Jewish Christians. And I listen to a lot of teachings that are eternal that helps my compassion fatigue a lot um i eat good food i don't overeat i'm mindful ever mindful always always mindful i i find time to be quiet and to just be and 
you know, and I'm looking for a, a place right now after this summit to go away for a week and just totally take care of myself, you know. You have to do that sort of thing, yeah. Um, do you mind if I ask you a question that's based on kind of like vegan businesses? Of course, you can ask me anything. Okay, all right, good. Um, this is one of my favorite questions to ask people who are involved in kind of any kind of activism around veganism. Um, so we see now like plant-based food and vegan food and even vegetarian food is like real outsider stuff. So um, I first went vegan in, I don't know, like 1997 or something like that. And I was only vegan for about a year and I was like, this is too much. And I just went back to being vegetarian and because uh, it was the food was like awful. It was just terrible. But and it was like outsider, outsider, outsider. You had to go to stores. It's hard to find. Like in big cities like New York, you could find things. But I, I grew up in Calgary, Alberta. So it was like really tough to find stuff. But there's been a boom. And being vegan is like way easier. And it's not actually even easy. It's just like super normal. I can go down to the grocery store. I can go down to the convenience store. I can get a good piece of vegan pizza pretty much anywhere. It's just a different time. But as that's happened... Lots of companies that aren't vegan based companies are starting to invest money or vegan companies are selling like they get to a point and then they sell themselves to like big food conglomerates. So a question that I like to ask is, is it possible for companies that aren't vegan based companies to be ran ethically? So do we run the risk of it becoming an oligarchy where essentially it's like large companies don't care where the money's coming from. They just want all of the money. So they'll produce tons of animal stuff and then produce vegan stuff because they don't really care about anything but getting the money. So is it possible for a, a vegan ran, uh, like a, a vegan food company to be ethical unless it's actually ran by people who share that philosophy? Yeah, you know, that's talked about a lot. And um, mm. I've had lots of conversations about this and um, you know, I, there's so many shifts happening at the same time. There's, um, there's people in these food companies like Tyson, for instance, let me just throw that name out there or, um, or Gardein, you know, cause they also have, they're, they're bought by, I think Tyson, I, I think there's a lot of different food companies that, that people that are at the forefront of making business decisions, they're, they're changing the way they eat, but the organization or the company itself is not ethical, you know, but some of the players are going ethical, uh, vegan. And so I think that, I think that we're still answering that question. I think that, uh, there's a big shift happening. Um, my preference is people like Miyoko that has Miyoko's. Hopefully she doesn't sell out to Kraft Cheese. Uh, I would not want to see that happen. But if it does, am I going to not eat their food anymore? No, that isn't going to happen. I will support um, vegan companies first, if I can, always 100%. Uh, but I will buy vegan products from companies that aren't a vegan company. Uh, because there's so much going on at the same time right now. And 
I think we got to be careful, uh, especially in a world that that veganism is not enough to change our world. Being vegan is not enough. Mm-hmm. We got to change our government, mm-hmm. you know. And so, uh, I mean, I was even in Canada. I think I was in Toronto. You were in I, Canada? Twice. Even uh, in I Canada? was in Parliament. I was in Parliament. I was asked to speak at Parliament. Mm. Yes, with Nation Rising. And so, because what I know is, unless we change our food system, mm-hmm. going vegan ain't going to fix it because the food system will stay broke. And so, They'll continue to subsidize and spend money and it, it won't it won't fix it. So I think we're in a very interesting state right now where we have to support vegan businesses first. I mean, I really do believe that if we can. Uh, and then but but don't don't be that person that doesn't buy a vegan product from a non-vegan company. Uh could, could I give you, could I give you my take on this just to, to add to this dialogue? Yeah, sure. Of course. Like I'm a straight up business person. Like I travel the world doing business and I will tell you that seven years ago, I'm dying of hunger at, a, at an airport. I can't eat anything. I'm eating like a bag of nuts and then I got to take a six hour flight somewhere where nothing on the flight is going to be vegan. And I'm not suffering and feeling some intense, intense pride about it. I'm just suffering. It sucks. It's horrible. And now I'm at an airport, basically anywhere, going to go to a meeting. We're at the meeting. They don't have to be embarrassed. They're able to get me some really good food from like whatever local place. Like, I like what you said about like, don't be that vegan. That's like, like, don't be that person. That's like a pain in the ass about everything. I, I, do I want big multinational companies to have an oligarchy? No, of course I don't want that. But at the same time, I want someone in Leftbridge, Alberta to be able to go and get vegan food somewhere, learn about it, at least become curious about it. And the more educated they get, then they can start funneling their money towards vegan health companies. But like, unless you have that clear entry point, then how are they going to do it? Like, uh, A&W is a, a big uh, burger franchise out, out here. And they were the first like big burger franchise in Canada to adopt the um, Beyond Burger. And when they did it, they saw a humongous boost of profits in this time. They were way a forerunner in it. And like every vegan I know is like, I love A&W. But you know when McDonald's comes out with some, some version of whatever, they're going to be like, man, McDonald's, screw them. And I kind of laugh at it because it's just kind of like, whoever kind of positioned themselves first good on a and w like and they sell way more hamburgers than they do anything else but good for them like i want people to have the options so they can get deeper and deeper and deeper into the culture become more and more and more um, educated they educate themselves they come across good things but just like wanting everything perfectly packaged in this like echo chamber of activism i think is like a disastrous way to try and proceed with any kind of change because then it also cuts out things like you're talking about it's like it's not just about being vegan it's about government. It's about business. It's about finances, like where things come from. It even like, how do you speak about politics and ideas with people? Like all of it is interconnected. I think the more you cut yourself off from the human experience, the the less you are able to connect with humans. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely the truth. And, you know, I just know that I like the whole cell-based meat. 
you know, uh, they were on one of our rap summits, um, Aleph, Aleph Farms uh, out of Israel was on one of our rap summits. And, you know, do you do vegans support cell based meat or not? Well, you know, I have been one of those vegans that I'm, I'm learning to understand why I would support support cell based meat. Do I want to eat it? No. Do I want my cat to eat it? Yeah. So, uh, you know, if I had a snake, would I want my snake to eat cell based meat instead of a rat? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, there's reasons to support, support cell-based meat technology. And, uh, I'm not going to be that vegan that doesn't. I'm not going to be the vegan that's going to hold back progress. I'm not going to be the vegan that says, Oh my God, impossible foods are beyond meat. They tested on these animals back in the day. And, you know, so now that means you're not a vegan if you eat an impossible burger. Uh, you know, probably by the time I walk from here to my kitchen, I'm going to step on some bugs. I, I don't mean to, uh, you know, and I think that sometimes we are, we are shooting ourselves in the foot. Vegans that, you know, are shooting themselves in the foot, trying to be too perfect. And what we have to do is change this world and not condemn, criticize, judge people that are really trying to do their best. Yeah, I agree. Everyone's path to veganism is different. And I love that new vegans have the opportunity to try something at a fast food joint. What a time to be alive. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and people like the fast food experience. Like my husband, he is a fast food junkie. And, you know, he likes going into Burger King. He liked, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken had those nuggets for a while, but they quit selling them. And, you know... It's part of what we like to do. You know, I I ran into Jason's Deli coming home because I hadn't eaten anything to get to this podcast. And I said, do y'all have any vegan options? She said, we have a delightful zucchini sandwich with hummus and uh, red onions. And I said, I'll take one. You know, it's not too good to me. Uh, you know, and so, you know, we've got to we got to be open to, to, to the fact that they said, yes, they do was huge to me. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, yeah, and going vegan is not a planned event. Can you elaborate on that for someone who might be vegan curious? Yeah, it's not. Uh, yeah, it's not a planned event. I was not planning on going vegan. Took me five years to um, go down the rabbit hole, never to come back. Uh, somebody that's vegan curious should keep going in the direction of being a vegan, just keep going in that, keep going that way. Um, read everything you can read, watch whatever you, you can, you know, don't be afraid to watch those documentaries that scare you. See, when I was going vegan, I didn't know I was going vegan, but I was educating myself and I watched documentaries like earthlings, uh, horrible footage. But I watch slaughterhouse videos. I watched that stuff until I didn't want to watch it anymore. I wanted to go vegan instead. I mean, be ethical. If you're gonna, if you really want to transition to go vegan, then watch the videos of what we're doing to these animals. Watch them. Cry, grieve, scream. Beat your head against the wall. Be mad at your family. Be mad at tradition. Be mad 
at what's happened. But don't avoid it. Dive in until you're vegan. Oh, yeah. Uh, what kind of music do you like and play? Like, what's like, what, what kind of music are you into? I love bluegrass. I love folk. I love, um, you know, I really love original, like, authentic music. And, you know, I also like, you know, Evanescence. And, you know, hardcore (laughs) stuff like that. All right. Okay. I'm about to throw some hardcore at you. I got to give you three names to consider here to, to check out. I would encourage you to listen, to check out. You may not love them musically. I do. I talk about them a lot on the podcast. Uh, Earth Crisis. Have you ever heard of Earth Crisis? No. They're a vegan straight edge band from Syracuse, New York. They're like, a f- they're like, there are very few bands that I could say change the game musically for like underground music. They're one of them. And they, they really introduced veganism. They're like the band that made and continues to make people vegan. Like they're incredible band they're still a band now they've been around forever a lot of great records i che- i encourage you to check out uh gomorra seasons and the lp and then i'll send all this to you and also uh destroy the machines they've got their whole catalog is gold but those two are great they're really focused on veganism and they're like i mean they are 100 why i'm vegan today like I, they got me into veganism when i was when i was young uh, didn't last, but then I came back to it and they're a huge thing, but they're one of them. The second is youth of today. Youth of today have a song called no more, which is one of the greatest songs about vegetarianism, uh, ever. And then there's a band called gorilla biscuits that has a song called cats and dogs that I think you'll connect to because of your story with rowdy girl. Those three bands have played such a huge role in so many people's path to veganism and, and vegetarianism and, and all of those things. The reason I ask you is because you talk as if you grew up in the punk and the hardcore scene. And it's like, it's like literally talking to you is like, oh yeah, like you totally should be fronting a hardcore band. So it's funny that you say you like hardcore. I do. You know, the girl that has the purple hair, I can't think of her name right now, but um, it's escaping me. She has a band. She talks, she sings. Oh, yeah. Um, Alyssa. Uh, Alyssa yeah, Whitebutt. Yeah. She yeah, is yeah. a friend of mine. I would love to get on her stage. Arch enemy. Arch enemy. I love her. And uh, she's a real big supporter of Rowdy Girl. And uh, yeah, and Moby. You know, Moby's a big supporter of our of our work. Yeah. Uh, Alyssa's also Canadian, so shout out I to know. My, That's to where I met her. My fellow Canadian. I met her in Canada. I did not know who she was. I was standing next to her and her and I started talking one thing led to the other, and next thing you know, she sees me get on stage. I see her get on stage, and we're like, "Oh, so now yeah, then we became fast friends." Yeah, um, she's also married. This is a little foible. I, I don't usually talk about this stuff. Uh, she's also, I think, married to Doyle from the Misfits. How do you feel about that, Patrick? Patrick is unimpressed, but I think that's pretty sick. Okay, <laughs> let's keep going because I have a. Maybe a tough question, maybe an easy question for you. And it's, it's a two-part question. Um, what does success mean for a rowdy girl? If you think about the organization, what does success look like for you? Well, uh, success for us is when I can completely take my hands off of it. And it's it's 
got a fundraising machine. It's got a presence. It's got a force uh, to be reckoned with without me at the wheel at all. And, uh, you know, where I am going around the country and the world with my husband promoting our book, uh, the documentary that'll be out in 2023. We've got a documentary that's focused 100% on the work I do. It's been in production for two years and uh, it's in final edit right now. Moby's the executive producer. So whenever I'm able to leave here, go out uh, and things are just humming. Y'all are taking care of Rowdy Girl without me at the wheel. Heck yeah. Um, shout out to Moby as well. Uh, you got some like weird tattoos lately, man. But you know what? I think you, you got a pretty sick history in, in, in many ways. Um, he does. Okay. okay. Part two <laughs> of my question, question for you is what does failure look like for Rowdy Girl? Well, you know, I am the type of person that doesn't see failure at all. Um, you know, so I'm going to answer this honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if I believed in failure, I would not even be here because it's taken every one of those so-called failures in my life to get me to here. So I look at failure as, uh, part of the ingredients to success. You know, if you don't fail, you'll never succeed period. And so, you know, to me, if failure for, to Rowdy Girl would be, to accept failure. Hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. I, I love that. I love that too. So, what do you mean when you say cattle ranchers love their animals and kill them too? Well, uh, I'll never forget the first time I said it. I got so much energy. I mean, good stuff, and also people go, "Oh my god, I can't believe you said that." <laughs> um, but it's, I mean, I made a meme. I made a meme that said that. And I got so much backlash from vegans, of course. Uh, you know, because it's true. You know, I'm the kind of person that always loved animals, but I ate them. You know, cattle ranchers love animals and kill them because they, they love taking care of the cows. They love going out and you know, intending to them and, and all, but when it's time to sell them, they have to sell them. They have to be a business person and do what they got to do to sell the animals and make a profit so that they can feed their family. That's the way they, they're conditioned to think. Uh, doesn't mean it's true, but that's conditioning. So when I say cattle ranchers love animals and kill them, I mean it. It's just that simple. You know, uh, I'll, I'll never forget the first time I saw it with my own eyes. I was like, I can't do this anymore. But I was still doing it. Tommy would come in with the with the, the bill of sale, you know. He would take a, a load of cows, cows, calves to the cell barn. And I would be crying about it. And he would come home. I wasn't a vegan. He would come home with a bill of sale and he'd say, you're doing all this crying and stuff. He said, but you don't mind spending the money. And he was, he was right. I was in this place where I was, it's like you're trapped in a magic spell. You know, you're trapped in a magic spell of animal ag, the way it runs, it runs you. 
So what does it mean like to take on animal agriculture? Because you talk about it like it's this like, you know, you said it's like, hey, ranchers are not are not the enemy. Animal agriculture is. So what does it mean to take that on? Like, how do you take that on? Like, how do you take it on and how does it resist change? Well, the way I take it on finally is head on. When I first uh, when I first went vegan for the animals and, and all people were like, don't don't call out big ag. Don't call out. You know, you, you know, you'll be a target, you know, and all this. Well, you know, I, I do call them out and I am a target and, you know, I'm on their hit list, but you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, I mean, I've seen the rancher advocacy program, Rowdy Girl Sanctuary on actual list on uh flow charts of animal ag that we are ones to watch, you know, uh, how do I take them on? I just call it out today. Animal ag is the leading cause of climate change, deforestation, ocean dead zones. You know, it's killing the rainforest. It is unbelievably horrible on our planet. I mean, if we wanted to go back in time to 10,000 years ago and just, you know, uh, let animals live on land and Every now and again, you know, maybe you eat an animal because of bad, bad conditions. It happens. Uh, maybe. But we have turned animal agriculture is a killing machine. It literally is about killing fast, furious, as many as you can kill with no regard for life whatsoever. Yeah. So with that, though, so animal ag, like we say, it, it's like kind of this amorphous, seems like this big kind of like dark thing. But what is it specifically? Like, do you get a chance to engage with people who would be considered part of that? Like, do they, no, I guess they don't ignore you, but when you say you're a target, like, what does that mean? So what is, what is animal ag? Like, and like, who are the players? Like, do you interact with them? What does it mean to be targeted by them? Any of those you want to hit on? Uh, yeah. Well, like whenever I was in the animal rights conferences, uh, like big, like animal ag representatives were there. They don't, they don't tap on your shoulder and say, hi, they are very much in the background. Um, yeah, I don't know who they they are because they are a they're a mega force that's why it's so important for vegans to get behind a lobbying group that is all about changing uh you know legislation that vegans can support i mean we have to do that because so much of the force of animal ag is political you know, it's a political force. And, you know, I mean, I mean, even our president, you know, supports, you know, all these slaughterhouses. So when you consider that, you know, and, and, and the players behind what makes that wheel, those wheels turn, we live in a very corrupt world where Animal ag is not a couple of people you talk to. It is a conglomerate. It's, it's, it's a mega force. You know, it's big ag, big, big dairy, big pharma, big banks, uh, you know, big, you know, uh, media. All of them are, 
are married together, all of that is big ag. Yeah, the reason I'm asking to dig and why I want to dig on in on this is the thing that I, I think is ultra important to get across to people. And I'm not even talking about veganism necessarily or animal advocacy. I'm talking about like change, like real deal change. It's not about attacking the person on Twitter that's like some idiot who says some stupid thing. Like all of this stuff goes like deep. It's big. It's like massive. And it's not like one person somewhere in a room pressing a button, not one person making a change. The reason people can be detached from humanity is the system that's built is inhuman. Like the, the system all these people are moving in is so huge. It's so interconnected, interwoven that one piece is doing something here. One piece is doing something there. Decisions are being made everywhere to sustain yeah. this insane system that we're a part of. And to, to not educate, to not get involved, to not be really, really focused on what it means to create long lasting change is actually just playing exactly into what keeps that system in power. And having like, the reason I keep pushing on some of the stuff with you is like, you're literally actually doing something. And, and that goes more than just not eating. It's like, you're, you're taking a space. I want people to understand like really what it means to create change because you are actually creating real change in the face of this. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, it does. It does. And that's the reason why I take the time to really be very thoughtful in the way I answer you. The reason we got on their, their hit list or whatever it is, is because I speak out. I, I'm not scared to speak out. I just do. And I think anybody that's calling Big Ag out is going to be on their list. Um, I, I wouldn't, you know, I might have talked to somebody. I know that Big Ag, they they buy out vegans to have, to create conflict with other vegans. Like, Big Ag is all in the middle of our vegan community, creating havoc within us, to separate us, to cause conflict with us. They've got the money to pay off even vegans or People that uh, uh, that look that may say they're vegans and are not really. Any other questions? No. Okay, I got a couple more as as we're uh, we're heading in. And then if you've got anything, uh, pop in. Um, so we're talking about like 4D chess with like big big forces but you're also like on the ground organizing creating change like cool relationships with people like you're just out there with people what does your day-to-day -day look like with running rowdy girl um my day-to-day -to -day, today we had some volunteers here um a guy named daniel austin he's known as the vegan meathead he's got a <laughs> he's got a book out you know called the vegan meathead and uh He's a power lifter and strong and vegan and him and his girlfriend came out and volunteered today. Uh, this weekend, we have uh, a group from an organization called HEAT, H-E-A-T, and they're all about, they're young kids, like 18 years old, that are all about, you know, uh, changing the environment and animals and, you know, animal rights and all that. And so there's about 18 of them coming out here uh, to volunteer. Um, my day to day, uh, you know, like Monday through Friday, uh, I have marketing meetings. I have social media meetings. I'm always developing content for our, 
channels on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and YouTube. And uh, I'm looking for somebody that wants to volunteer to help, you know, blow my TikTok out of the water. So if you know anybody that wants to help me with TikTok, please send them my way. Uh, but, you know, it's it's constant. Like, I'm, I'm always in meetings, uh, in meetings with our with AFA, the co-founder, Connie Spence, and um, the lobbyists that we have in, in the 501c4, uh, doing what I can to affect change there. Um, we just got funding for a fundraising consultant, so I'm so excited that I actually have the money to bring in a bona fide fundraising consultant to really amp up our uh, our fundraising engine. And so, uh, cause that's makes it one step closer to me being able to one day take my hands off. Um, a lot of that, a lot of fundraising, a lot of, you know, writing my book. I was, I was in Arkansas a couple of weeks ago for a week filming the last segment of the documentary. Um, you know, making good food, being with my animals, walking out and spending lots of time with the animals. I, you know, whenever I need a break, I just go from here and I walk down to the farmhouse and, you know, I go and let the goats out, let them follow me around. And I'll go sit outside with the chickens and video and go walk out and talk to the cows and the horses and the pigs. Just uh, I just take breaks, you know, and, you know, we have a we have animal care staff today. So it isn't me and my husband taking care of all the animals like we did in the beginning. Thank God I could not do all this stuff if I did. But, uh, yeah, we have volunteers. We have staff. I have administrative assistants, so I'm directing her. Yeah, and telling my husband what to do a lot. Respect. Respect. All right, I got three more questions as we uh, wrap up. Uh, You got anything, Monica? I don't have any more questions. I'm just in awe of you. Oh, Monica, thank you. Um, Well, and actually, we... I even knew about you because of Monica. Monica brought it up and was like, we need to interview this person. And then of course I just like fell in love with the story and it's just, it's just cool. Like this is, this is cool. and It's been great. All right. And then if you have any questions, anything you want to ask us, anything you want to add in, please feel free. So anything on your end before I ask you three well, questions? Well, I want to make sure that I can, you know, that I can interact with y'all on social media. So um, Monica, you know, if you would just, I don't know if you follow me on Instagram or wherever, but make sure I know who you are. Both I'll message you. you. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate that. All right. These three questions are going to be the hardest questions I have asked you. We have asked you so far, and they're only going to get harder as we, as we go along. Are you ready? Okay. When you think about what you do and your day to day, what is the perfect soundtrack? For what artist would be the perfect soundtrack for the work that you do day to day? What artist? I'm sorry. I know this is a tough one. What artist? Like what singing, singing artist? Music could be a band, could be a solo artist, whatever you want. Well, I think if I had to choose the artist that would be perfect, it would be Moby. Hmm. And the reason I say that is because I know how much he loves our organization. 
I know how much he follows what we do. And so if I was going to choose somebody to be an artist for the work we do, I would want to make sure they know us. <laughs> Respect. Good work. I like that. Okay. You ready for question two? Yeah. Again, very, very hard. Okay. Um, so when we're thinking about people who want to see change and they can change, like anyone can be vegan, but there's a difference between just, Hey, I'm going to be vegan versus like actually driving change. And so it doesn't just have to be about veganism, any kind of change that people want to make. Do you have anything, any words of inspiration, anything that you could help form up people's thinking about how do you move from just being kind of like a solo artist where it's like, yeah, I'm just going to do my own thing versus actually, you know what? I'm going to be the person leading, leading this. I'm going to be the person who's going to take the leap. I'm going to be the person who puts their hand up. Is there anything that you could suggest to people about like, how do you find that within yourself to put your hand up and to lead the charge? Great question. Everybody that's vegan, you must become an activist. Uh, in today's world, uh, you know, it, it, I thank you for being vegan. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, but if you really want to affect change uh, for the animals, for our world, you've got to be an activist in some way. And the way that you do that is by knowing who you are. Everybody's got a got a mouth. Hope you know, not everybody. I mean, I know somebody. Some people are deaf and they can't speak. But if you can speak, then get on your phone, do reels on Instagram. Uh, whatever you whatever you can do today in today's technology, you can be an activist and inspire the people in your own sphere of influence. Do whatever. I mean, there's people do chalk activism, you know, uh, get involved in some sort of activism that speaks to you and don't give up. Don't stop. Always be an activist. I mean. You have to. If you don't, you just uh, in our world today, we are on the tipping point and probably already are past it of of losing it, of losing it, losing our planet. You know, you know, we've got to be selfless here. If we don't do anything, we're just being selfish. We got to start finding our voice. And if you need help finding your voice, just private message me. I will inspire you to find your voice. I promise. Hell yeah. I love that. All right. Last question. I lied. This one's actually going to be pretty easy, but it's kind of big. So it might, you know, and take up, take up as long as you want on this one. What can you tell us about the upcoming book and the upcoming documentary? And also when can we expect them? Well, the book, um, which right now the working title is The Secret Diary of a Cattle Rancher's Wife. Hmm. Uh, and it's really, it's a memoir and uh, all about my transition from a cattle rancher to a vegan and the work I do as an activist. And so uh, it, it's all about my relationship with the cows and the animals and um uh, you know, uh, I'm sure my autism will really come out in that because I really do talk to animals and they talk to me and I hear them. And so it really comes out. And, uh, uh, you know, when's it going to be out? Well, my hope is that I, I have it finished this year, you know, and so the manuscript will be finished and 
ready for uh, publication next year. The documentary is in final edit and it is supposed to start hitting film festivals first quarter. Heck yeah, that's awesome. All right. So as we're closing off, where can people look up Rowdy Girl, look you up, be in touch? Uh, where should people look for your stuff? RowdyGirlSanctuary.org is our Rowdy Girl website and RancherAdvocacy.org is our Rancher Advocacy Program. And please, please come to the summit. This is a summit you do not want to miss. And if you have the funds and are so inclined to become a sponsor, we have a great lineup of sponsors and we need the sponsors because the more sponsors we have, the more money we can spend on production of the summit. Heck yeah. Awesome. All right, uh, Monica, any closing thoughts from you? It's been a pleasure talking to you, Renee. Thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you both. And Renee, anything you want to say as we're closing off? I just want to let you know, both know how much I appreciate the uh, the interview. Uh, I know it took a, took a while to get here, but it's been a real pleasure. And every time I'm interviewed, uh, by people like you that really have a lot of passion for what you do. It opens me up a little bit more to be better, to be a better activist, to be a better leader. So thank you for inspiring me to go another step. Heck yeah. All right. Um, everyone, I will break down this episode a little bit more. I'm going to tell you about how I got into being actually a vegan rather than just a vegetarian and it has to do with uh, a dog that I had. So maybe a little bit of a similar story to you that I'll share in the outro. Um, but as we're closing off, Renee, this was a super cool conversation. Um, you know, a lot of people come to the podcast from different places. We've got people from the corporate world. We've got People who are into punk and hardcore. We've got people who are actors, activists, athletes. People come from all sorts of different places. Um, but they all come to hear about one thing. Yes, I have two dogs here right now. Um, this is Blue over here, who is our wiener dog. And he's a very nice guy. And then we have Jesse, who's over here, who would never be a vegan because he loves the sweet meat of biting Patrick's ankles. He hates Patrick so much. He loves to bite him. Um, people come from all sorts of backgrounds, but they all come here to hear about leadership. And like one of the things I think is the most important for me about leadership is just because someone has a title, like I don't CEO or director or whatever it is, doesn't mean they're a leader. There's a difference between being a leader and like pushing things and leading doesn't, leadership doesn't have to be some like totally insane change, but leaders are accountable to creating the right kinds of environments. So the right kinds of things happen. And sometimes people lead really big things like you're doing, like big, important changes. And other times you're just leading a project happen. But leadership has everything to do about creating the right environments so the right things happen. And I'm so inspired by your story and all the incredible work you're doing. So thank you so much for being an incredible example of what's possible when people are willing to really lead. Thank you. You know, I appreciate that. I, uh, I, uh, I, if, if I, you know, I, I realize I'm a leader, you know, but I, I didn't like sign up for the job. It just is, it, it, it happened and I'm up for it. So uh, I'll do whatever I have to. Awesome. All right, everyone, we'll see you in the outro. And Spencer, drop the beat. One step.